Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Clash of the Titles, the podcast that sees two movies with something in common go head-to-head to see which one does it better. And this week's battle is huge in the red corner. The film that birthed the summer blockbuster has its day on Clash of the Titles and never has a film's tagline served as quite such a literal warning for an entire generation of moviegoers as... When this film's poster announced, you'll never go in the water again, it was right! Yes, it's time for ClashPod to head to the beaches of Amity Island, where a cloud has appeared. A cloud in the shape of a killer shark. From 1975, it's Steven Spielberg's Jaws. There is a creature alive today who has survived millions of years of evolution without change, without passion, and without logic. It lives to kill. A mindless eating machine. It will attack and devour anything. It is as if God created the devil and gave him jaws. While in the blue corner, We've clocked the T-Rex to 32 miles per hour. T-Rex? You said you've got a T-Rex? Yes, challenging Jaws this week, we're heading to Isla Nublar for an adventure 65 million years in the making. Question, should you grow dinosaurs from DNA you found in ancient blood? Man, I don't know, I'm too busy thinking about whether I could do that. Yes, that's right, it's Spielberg versus Spielberg this week on Clash Pod from 1993. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Jurassic Park. I own an island off the coast of Costa Rica, and I've spent the last five years setting up a kind of biological preserve. What kind of park is this? Don't you see the danger, John, inherent in 
what you're doing here. Genetic power is the most awesome force the planet's ever seen. You wield it like a, a kid that's found his dad's gun. These are aggressive living things that have no idea what century they're in, and they'll defend themselves violently if necessary. Dinosaurs and two species separated by 65 million years of evolution just been suddenly thrown back into the mix together. How can we possibly have the slightest idea what to expect? So what connects these two films, and which one does it better? Let's find out. It's Clash of the Titles. Release the Kraken! Hello, Clash Podders! I'm Alex Zane. I'm Vicky Crompton. I'm Chris Tilly. So, a very good welcome to all of you. Um, It is, as I have just announced, a big show this week. Big, big shows, both of them. Chris, Vicky, are you ready for this? How are you feeling, Victoria? I feel a bit nervous because of how much you like Jaws. I do love Jaws a lot. Christopher, how are you feeling? Yeah, good. Although has Vicky just shown her in your hands very early in this one? No, 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 because Jurassic Park <laughs> is very close to my heart. Very close to my heart. Interesting. Yeah, we're- we're professionals. We're not also, just going to announce. Yeah, we're not just going to announce it. And I'm inferring from that that you think I would choose based on Alex's potential tantrum, which I'm not going to do. <laughs> not this time. Why are you nervous then? Oh, <laughs> I don't like it when he has a tantrum. I feel bad for him, but I'm happy to take him to that point. Also, <laughs> I am right here. And I, you, can, you can just ask me. I'm not going to have a tantrum if Jaws doesn't win because Jaws is going to win. So there you go. Um, We have actually touched on Jurassic Park once before on the podcast when we were talking about Congo. Um, I don't know if you remember, which is obviously another film based on a Michael Crichton novel. I mean, the big difference is that that film stars Tim Curry and this one (laughs) doesn't. (laughs) And uh, that concludes this week's obligatory Tim Curry mention. Uh, Let's crack on. So the clue... Uh, for this week's Battle Royale uh, was given by V. I'm going to let you tell us it again because I know you love your clue, Victoria. I've got two Sorry. Um, first clue. Do, uh, do my teeth look big in this? Oh, that's, it. That's, like, that's probably quite a, yeah nebulous. But the yeah. second clue is a bit of a slam dunk because it's Vicky, a Vicky, funny. Vicky, 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 Vicky. I didn't actually post your second clue um, Did you on, on Twitter because... When you're using the most famous line of dialogue in the film, which is also <laughs> one of the most famous lines of dialogue in movie history, yes. I thought it was maybe too good a clue. Uh, <laughs> or okay. bad a clue. <laughs> or bad a clue. But do you agree that it's very funny? <laughs> I think that's all I care about. I, I need to hear you say it. Remind us of it one last time. I'm just going to try and say it without laughing because it's so hilarious. Um, we're going to need a bigger kitchen. <laughs> Isn't it good? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, oh, I, like, I worked it through as well. I did I did it properly. I was like, we're going to need a bigger enclosure. Pff, boring. We're going <laughs> to need a bigger kitchen. Yes, three. Anyway. Uh, well, as Chris said, he only put, do my teeth look big in this? Up on Twitter, we are at ClashPod. Please follow us. Um, these are the guesses. Uh, Johnny Moore says, do my teeth look big in this? Austin Powers versus teeth. Um, a very literal <laughs> Translation, Mike Myers versus a carnivorous lady part. Uh, Pagey Rich says, do my teeth look big in this? Jurassic World versus Jurassic Park. He got close. Mark Shea says, do my teeth look big in this? Jaws versus Orca versus Piranha. 
uh, that would not be a fair fight, but it's a good guess. Uh, Russell goes with, do my teeth look big in this? Little Shop of Horrors versus the Rocky Horror Picture Show starring Tim Curry. That is uh, doubling down on the Tim Curry obligatory mentions this week. But congratulations to Matthew Wood, who says, do my teeth look big in this? Jaws versus Jurassic Park. Nice work, Matthew. So your choices, V. Why did you pick these movies? Uh, I wanted to do. I don't. Have we ever done a film yet where it's actually someone's out and out favourite film versus something that is a very strong contender to win? Because I would be interested to see how we're going to manage that. Um, but there is an anniversary which I have forgotten, and I'm speaking slowly so Chris can help me. <laughs> it's the 72 anniversary <laughs> of Jurassic Park. <laughs> That was it. God, why can't I remember anything? <laughs> it's the 45th anniversary of Jaws. Correct, Chris? Correct. Oh, I should be able to do that because I'm because of maths. Fuck's sake. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> you have other strengths. So, <laughs> um, would you like us to have a go at guessing the connection that you might have come up with? Uh, yes, please. Chris, would you like to go first? Uh, movies where creatures aren't the villain, but rather commerce. Oh, Nice. That's good, yeah. Um, I've got a, a, a factual one to begin with. Uh, both films were at one time the highest grossing movie ever. Uh, Jaws uh, was until Star Wars came out. Then Jurassic Park was until Titanic came out. That's a good fact. Hmm? I've, got, I've got one that's less a connection, more a lesson. Uh, don't yeah. let the author adapt the book. Mm. There were two Ooh, okay. very bad screenplays written uh, for both these films by the authors in question. Okay. Okay. Well, if we start doing a lessons section, then that'll work. <laughs> uh, um, so um, I've got quite a good one. Is the connection a T-Rex? Go on. It, it, I suppose. <laughs> Go on. So uh, your suppose possibly isn't this one, but... In Jurassic Park, uh, we obviously have the very famous T-Rex with its very famous T-Rex roar. Yes. And in Jaws, after the shark blows up and its body sinks to the bottom of the ocean, the sound used is the roar of the T-Rex in one million years BC slowed down. No way. Is that true? What? Yeah. That's Amazing. true. Spielberg. That's... Spielberg used that effect uh, when the, uh, the shark sinks to the bottom of the sea, and he also used it when the truck goes over the cliff in Duel, which we were talking about last week. Where were, weren't we? Uh, well, I would like to give you the point because that's better than my connection. Unless, Chris, you've got any more, I'll just give you mine, but it's very literal. Do it. Uh, it's Steven Spielberg turns creatures from books into films set to music by John Williams. <laughs> 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 Thank you, IMDb. Uh, yeah, that's good. It's solid. Um, I, you can't fault it. I, I want to, <laughs> but you can't. It's all there. So you gave me Jaws. You gave Christopher Jurassic Park. We do it chronologically. I shall start us on this journey with Jaws. So this week I was given Jaws, a film that in no small way is responsible for my love of cinema and fear of the ocean. When a rogue shark starts chewing through bathers and a dog off the coast of Amity Island, police chief Brody decides to close the beaches. No dice, says the mayor of Amity, not an actual line. We are a summer town. We need summer dollars. 
But when the shark takes no notice of the seasonal economy of the island and carries on chomping, Brody enlists the help of posh oceanographer Matt Hooper and salty local fisherman Quint, who offers a find it for three, but I'll catch it and kill it for ten situation. And so begins one of the greatest final acts in cinema history. Ladies and gentlemen, for your consideration, Jaws. This is Universal's extraordinary motion picture version of Peter Benchley's best-selling novel, Jaws. I just found out that a girl got killed here last week, and you knew it. You knew there was a shark out there. You knew it was dangerous, but you let people go swimming anyway. that most people get attacked by sharks in three feet of water about 10 feet from the beach yeah what we are dealing with here is a perfect engine uh an eating machine we're not only going to have to close the beach we're going to have to hire somebody to kill the shark bad fish but i'll catch him and kill him did you hear your father out of the water now this shark swallow you whole ah! you're going to need a bigger boat So, that's Jaws in a nutshell. Let's talk about how we came into this film. Where did it start for each of us? Chris, where did your journey begin with Jaws? Well, I feel like Jaws is ubiquitous. I think I knew the music before the film. Um, I knew it was scary, and my parents had talked about it being scary. So I waited until I think I was about 13, 14 maybe, to watch it. And I wasn't disappointed, but I probably only watched it two or three times in my life. So it's not one that's been as many as maybe some other films we've talked about on this podcast. And actually on this viewing, the one thing I did take away was I'd forgotten just how much of the film plays out on the water in that second half. Wow. So only like two, three watchings of the greatest film ever made. That is shocking. <laughs> um, but no, each to their own, each to their own. Victoria, what's your relationship with Jaws? It's, it's kind of the same. I, I don't think I would have been allowed to watch it when I was younger. So I didn't watch it till I was um, like in my late teens and I was already scared of the sea. So there was nothing for it to do there. But when I watched it, I wasn't. So I wasn't as scared because because um, of the shark and, and how massive it looks. And I've, I've seen it a few other times. since. So it's kind of the same as Chris. Like, I haven't seen it that many times and I'd forgotten quite a lot about it. Okay. So mine is literally the polar opposite of both your experiences with this film. I watched it when I was five or six years old. Um, I remember it being, I think it might have been on ITV. Uh, So it was on TV. I was five or six. And I said to my mom, I want to watch Jaws. I think they did a little trail before the ad break. It was trailed in some way. I didn't just look it up in a TV guide. And I was like, I want to watch Jaws. And my mom was like, no. And I was like, I want to watch Jaws. She was like, absolutely not. And I was like, I want to watch Jaws. She went, fine. But don't say I didn't warn you, which to this day I have a problem with because a five-year-old child doesn't understand the concept of Jeopardy. So I, I didn't really understand what I was letting myself in for. I watched the opening killing of Chrissy in the sea, and then I had to watch the rest to find that there was going to be some resolution to whatever this horror was. So I sat through Jaws. 
I've never been in the sea since. <laughs> I climbed out of a swimming pool when I was doing my 25-meter swimming certificate because I thought there was a shark in the pool and I just got out, failed. And I couldn't have bubbles in the bath for a while because I needed to see the bottom in case shark comes up through trapdoor <laughs> and death. And it's so tragic because you'll never know the freedom of what it is to have a wee in the sea. And that is such a shame for you because it's just one yeah. of life's few I... illicit pleasures. I could have a wee in the sea, but I'm only ever ankle deep in the sea. I will splash around in the surf. So I, w- I would just be a man with a gradually widening damp patch on his shorts standing in the sea. You get thrown out of the sea for that business. <laughs> even then, even then I have to position other bathers between me and open water. So I think if a shark did come and launch itself onto the beach to get me, it would go for that person first. <laughs> like and a human it's... reef. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like a fleshy reef, yeah. <laughs> So I, I'm guessing you don't have a problem with shark movies just the since then, just the water. A shark movie is not a problem for you. Well, Jaws isn't a problem for me. I love, like, they are a film that will scare me. I say a film that will scare me. Nothing has scared me quite like Jaws. The only film that came close that involves a shark was quite recent, which was The Shallows. There are, that somehow captured the absolute terror of something being under the water that you don't know where it is and you can't see. And, uh, yeah. Did I you mean, see open? Did you see open water? That was the one that frightened me the most. I think. Yeah, it's open water was a weird one because obviously that's the one where they shot with real sharks, uh, didn't they? And it was all very. It was like it was very handy cam footage. It was one yeah. of those uh, found footage kind of things. And um, yeah, I didn't mind it. I, I, it sort of lacked the narrative that Jaws did because as much as I like to be scared, I also like my classic movie structure as opposed to just the the misery of watching two people gradually die slowly in the ocean. Yeah, well, you certainly get your hero's journey here. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And then some. A final note, I have a shark tattooed on my wrist. Um, uh, There are two stories. Uh, One is that I tattooed it on there um, because I wanted to remind myself if I ever got drunk on a beach not to go in the sea. I made that up after I got it tattooed on my wrist when I was drunk. So uh, (laughs) that is my life with Jaws and Sharks. I've tried to sub down the history of this movie, so I'm going to crack through it. This is how Jaws the movie came to be. Are you ready, guys? Yes. Strap in. So, produced by the legendary team of Richard Zanuck and David Brown, who'd previously hit it big with The Sting. That is how Jaws came to be produced. They had connections in the publishing industry, especially David Brown, who had contacts in the publishing world and knew about Peter Benchley's debut novel, Jaws, before it actually came out. He thought it sounded like a great movie, so without knowing if the book would be a hit... They paid $150,000 for the rights and, uh, much to Chris's chagrin later, $25,000 for Benchley, the author, to write the screenplay. Little did they know. Um, have, you ever, have you ever met uh, Richard Zanuck, Christopher? I have not. Is he, is he even still mm. around? No, he's not anymore. He was, um, I, I actually, obviously being a Jaws fan, it was quite a moment because he exec produced Clash of the Titles, uh, Titans. Our, <laughs> Clash of the, yeah, <laughs> he's the exec producer on this show. Uh, he, ga- he gave me the idea when I met him while he was still around and he was like, you should do this, kid. I was like, cool, thanks very much. I'll credit you one day. So um, <laughs> the remake of Clash of the Titans, uh, noteworthy because it has uh, genuinely the worst tagline in cinema history, which was, Clash of the Titans, 
Titans will clash. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just, just someone, someone took a day off. Uh, it was um, one of the first unwatchable 3D conversions, and I met him at the premiere. And I said to him, and I wasn't sort of trying to lead him down a path, but I was like, "What? What do you think of this new 3D technology in cinemas?" And he looked at me and he said. Audiences are going to lose interest if people keep making these shoddy 3D conversions <laughs> <laughs> of his own movie, uh, which I've now decided was him not giving a fuck. <laughs> um, so they'd um, already worked with Steven Spielberg on his debut feature, which hadn't yet been released, The Sugarland Express, and they were very impressed with the young Spielberg, so they got him to do... Jaws. Initially, he said no. He'd done Jewel, which got a theatrical release in Europe, and he said to them, "Ah, who wants to be known as the shark and truck director? It's kind of a strange statement, don't you think? It's sort of like James Cameron going, I don't want to be known as the aliens and (laughs) big boats director. They're sort of like, you don't draw a through line between Jaws and Jewel, I guess maybe because they're both killer things. Um, well, anyway, he, he, he did, changed he his did, mind. Yeah, I was going to say he did draw a through line himself because I, I saw him <laughs> saying that he liked the idea of it because it was like a sequel to Jewel and it had four letters like Jewel. And for, oh, those really? re- for those reasons, he did it. And I'm just thinking that's not a reason that it's got the same amount of letters <laughs> as, as your debut film. <laughs> it's a great connection for Clash of the Titles, though. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, have either of you read Peter Benchley's novel? No. No. Okay. Um, I did. Uh, as a completionist, I read the novel. Um, yeah, it's all right. It's um, it's a very difficult novel to enjoy if you've seen the movie. Um, not just because the movie's so great and it, you expect it to be like the movie, but because there's some real major differences in the book. Um, the mafia are involved in the book. There's a subplot where it's they who want the beaches kept open because the mayor is in the pocket of the mafia. Uh, but the main difference is in the book, Hooper, Matt Hooper, lovable Richard Dreyfus's character in the movie, is an absolute dick. <laughs> uh, he's awful. He's uh, an egocentric posh guy who has an affair in a seedy motel with Chief Brody's wife, Ellen no, Brody. No. Yeah. Yeah. That bastard. What does he think he's playing at? What? How's right. he got the time? What? He's a real piece of work in the book. <laughs> a real piece of work. Al, am I right in thinking the book isn't particularly good? It's difficult to say. I mean, it went, it was a huge, mm. huge bestseller. It was massively popular. But. I I can't separate the movie and the book. So I read the book and went, oh my God. That is not as good as the film. And I think even without my love of the film, it is not as good as the film. I didn't mind it. I really like the point of view stuff, uh, like from the shark, like the the sort of um, the monologue as though he's the shark, uh, which is quite good. Um, and I like Peter Benchley. I like the fact that I don't know whether it was completely out of guilt, but after he sort of created this monstrous opinion of sharks is killing machines he did then go on to spend the rest of his life um being a champion of uh, ocean conservation and seeing sharks as good things i think he said recently if they ever remade jaws um you couldn't have the shark as the villain because a man would have to be the villain 
uh, not the shot. So, um, so yeah, I, I, I certainly wouldn't recommend going out to, to get it. It's not an essential read. No, and, and certainly seeing interviews in, he passed away about 15 years ago, but he, um, he certainly seems to be as surprised as anyone that, that the book has had such a life and was so successful. Yeah. It, I, I, without, I, as we go on, I think it seems like in the 70s, people really didn't know as much about sharks. I think so much of like the, the common parlance that we have of sharks comes from Jaws, uh, the film. And pre-Jaws, people just didn't sort of talk about sharks as much or know about sharks as much or have this idea of sharks as much. And I think the book before the film did that to a certain degree. And people, Mm. it was like people suddenly would become like, wow, sharks are just out there eating us. (laughs) And uh, that's uh, the book did what the film then went on to take the title for. And so, yeah, I wouldn't read the book. uh, I'm not saying I wouldn't read the book. I'm saying it's not as good as the film. So... Here is my favourite fact about Zanuck and Brown going, we're going to turn this into a movie. And Spielberg wants to shoot the movie at sea. Never been done before. He doesn't want to use a tank, doesn't want to use models or miniatures. He wants to shoot this movie at sea. And Zanuck and Brown planned, and this is from their own lips, they planned to get someone to train a great white to perform (laughs) some simple stunts on cue with a dummy in the water to get their shark footage. There is a record of a conversation that they had about how important it would be to cast the right shark. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) They said it needs to be good and tame for close-up work with a stunt double. Yeah. I don't think they got them. I don't think... I know that... the. That Jaws created a reputation for great white sharks that isn't quite true. They don't eat people all the time, but they do eat people when you know occasionally. So trying to train one very dangerous. Just, I mean, can you imagine the casting process? So uh, you're here to audition for the role of a shark in Jaws. <laughs> would you uh, would you say you're good and tame? Do you work well with others? Okay, we'll just we'll play the score. Show us what you got. Um, <laughs> you you can't train great whites. No, Peter Benchley told them as much, um, and so. Um, they started looking for options on how to have a shark. And all of the special effects guys at Universal who were paying for this movie uh, said, it just can't be done. You're going to have to use miniatures. You can't have to use models. And then along came a man who has, by all accounts, one of the best can-do attitudes in the world, a guy called Bob Matty, who went, yeah, all right, <laughs> I'll do it. I, I, I've not heard him speak, so I'm pretty sure that's not his voice. Yeah, all right, I'll give it a go, uh, which kind of sounds like what he said. He basically did the squid attack in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and went, yeah, I reckon I can make a giant mechanical shark that will work in the ocean. And so he built the mechanical shark that became known as Bruce, uh, which famously did not work very well. We'll get on to that. Final thing before we start talking about the movie, a uh, quick bit on the casting. Um, Brody, Chief Brody, Charlton Heston apparently wanted to play him, um, but he just saved a 747 in Airport 75 and was busy saving Los Angeles from an earthquake, and they thought it didn't quite feel right if he saved a small island from a shark. Uh, Jeff Bridges was apparently considered for Hooper, although Spielberg says Richard Dreyfus was always his first choice. Um, Quint was offered to Lee Marvin, who said no, and Sterling Hayden, who was uh, General Jack D. Ripper 
from Doctor Strangelove, and he couldn't do it because he was living on a barge in France and couldn't work in the US because of how much money he owed the IRS. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> true. They got Robert Shaw, who they'd worked with on The Sting, and who'd done the Taking Pelham 1, 2, 3, and who, by the end of the shoot, owed a lot of money to the IRS. So, uh, <laughs> all true. And um, Spielberg's whole thing was he wanted non-marquee names for the role so as not to distract from the shark and the story. I'm just going to say I'd never seen any of these actors, age five, before I saw them in this movie, and forevermore after seeing it. And even now, Roy Scheider is Brody, Richard Dreyfuss is Hooper, and Robert Shaw is Quint. How, how do you feel about them as actors outside of Jaws? Well, I was going to say Dreyfuss was in a lot of stuff when we were growing up in the 80s, a lot of family films, a lot of... Uh, thrillers and comedies so I know him and obviously Close Encounters was his other great probably his 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 greatest performance was in that film so I think of him this is just one of his roles whereas I agree the other two are inseparable from these two these two performances yeah yeah I mean I hadn't seen him I mean I obviously he was in Close Encounters of the Third Kind um uh, which was another huge film I'd never for me he's just he's Hooper because I saw him in this and you know I just never, I could never separate him out because it, it was such a, a powerful film um, for me. Uh, right then, let's get into a movie that was budgeted at $3.5 million with a 55-day shoot um, with 35 days on land and 20 days at sea, which by the end cost $7 million and the shoot lasted 159 days. Yeah, re- <laughs> regarding that shoot, can I give you an awful Steven Spielberg quote? Uh, yes, you can. He, he said, Jaws was my Vietnam. It was basically naive people against nature and nature beat us every day. I don't know what that means. And I don't think that's right. But anyway, that's something that he said about the movie. Yeah, I mean, he he recounts it as the toughest shoot uh, of his career. And honestly, when you read about it, it's really to even read about it and watch documentaries about it. It makes me stressed. Like, it stresses the shit out of me, like, how awful it must have been just sitting there waiting for a group of men trying to get a mechanical shark to work for, like, eight hours a day. And then just as they get it to work, the sun sets, and you're like, right, good, another day gone. Uh, let's do this. Let's go through this movie. I've actually, in all my years of talking about Jaws, it's always been in an abstract fashion. I've never had the pleasure of going through the film um, with friends and and talking through each scene. So I, let me just say I'm very excited about this. Very excited. Um, so we open um, with a beach party, um, the kind of party I would never uh, want to be at, even then. Uh, it looks awful. There's a guy... Uh, playing an acoustic guitar, folk songs, it sounds like, but within spitting distance of a man playing the harmonica, those two things colliding. It's a, it's a nightmare, honestly. I, I just wouldn't want to be there. Um, and then I'd never noticed this before, and we've talked about it, having to analyse these films and looking at the minute detail in every scene. What the hell is that woman doing with that lobster? Um, did you notice there's a woman sitting there who clearly has never seen a lobster before? It's, it's claws off, and... Like, she's just sort of putting the claw back on the lobster and taking it off again. I'm assuming she's high. <laughs> I didn't yeah, notice. I, think so. I didn't notice, but I, I would say that, yeah. Um, also, if you are a single guy at a party looking to get laid, do you go for the woman sitting on her own by a pile of rubbish in a smoking dustbin? I think no. <laughs> <laughs> I like to call this scene the eat the slut scene. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, yeah, I mean, I, I was, I was, I was gonna say that. Um, was this ahead of the curve? Was this the first slasher movie? Because, yeah, exactly. <laughs> because slasher movies, the teens get killed for being promiscuous, and and he even has to say to her, "What's your name again?" So there's no yeah. connection between the two of them whatsoever, apart from you know wanting to get laid. And in the same way that slasher films, you set up the early kill. Uh, which this does, there's the morality play and then it's stalk and slash for the rest of the movie. So I feel like this is the template that Halloween and Friday the 13th and all those movies used. Mm. Yeah, certainly in, in the shark eating the uh, the, the wrong uns. That's the, I, I, but this is, I mean, I'm not saying it's wrong to to have sex in the sea, but I certainly have no sympathy for them. Um <laughs> not, uh, <laughs> Another thing yeah. you'll never enjoy while we're at it. Kidding, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> no one enjoys sex in the sea. No, no one. It's a salty business. No, enough. Uh, that's a, I don't know why I just thought that'd be a, we should remake, they should do a sex in the city, but with mermaids and call it sex in the sea. <laughs> uh, and then I just realised that mermaids lay eggs. So, bleh. Um Right. Um, so, uh, the shark was meant to appear in this scene. Um, uh, when Chrissy, um, the, the bather, is attacked, uh, the shark was meant to be there. Like, right from the off, they were hoping to show the shark. And again, it's only because it didn't work that we have the film that we have. And Spielberg quite honestly says, if I had had a shot that worked, if I'd been able to, if CGI had been what it is today back then, I would have shown the shark... And this is a quote. He says, I would have made half the movie that we have. And it's only through chance that we get this movie and it's as good as it is. And um, surely you were terrified when the shark attacks Chrissy, though. I'm, I'm, I mean, no, I think it's normal human uh, fear to be scared of when you can't see your feet. But I'm not really... I don't know. I'm scared of it because I'm scared when you can't see the bottom of the sea, but I'm not scared right. of sharks. But it's not. I've told you this before. I'm more scared of box jellyfish. I've spoken to you a lot about box jellyfish and they're terrifying because they kill you dead in like a second. No, I mean, I get it. But how do you visualize that in a sort of violent death? I mean, she'd have been bobbing there going, oh, fuck, and then <laughs> sinks. Yeah. That would have been... I, I think um, it's those it's those really jerky movements that suggest this kind of unimaginable violence that, that yeah. gets me in that scene. And, and she really sells it. And I'm upset that mm. this time I've had to do my, my research and found out it was done by a couple of guys on the beach holding winches that were attached to a leg and then running from side to side. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. Which sounds Rich. so ridiculous if you'd seen that. But obviously it's so... Um, it it works so well because she just realised if she just um, whipped her head in the in the opposite direction to where they were pulling her, it it looked incredibly violent and it and it's very effective. Mm. Yeah, it's the whole left it to the imagination thing because you can't see the shark as well. You are genuinely visualising this horrible thing jerking her around like that and pulling her through the water. And I remember the first time I ever saw it, age five, I was like, please let her climb onto that boy. Please let her climb up the thing, get out of the water. And she doesn't. She just hangs onto it and then dead. Um, I um, I do um, I do think it's kind of funny that this was Spielberg's brilliant sort of opening to his biggest movie, and it went on to become this huge success. And he thought, you know how terrifying that opening was. I'm going to parody it in 1941 at the start, and it's just like I I can't get over the fact he thought I'll I'll 
I'll take all the horror and fear out of this opening by having it happen with a Japanese submarine in my um, slapstick comedy 1941. Mm-hmm. Which is weird, weird decision he made. Um, but I, I did go down a 1941 wormhole, and I would like to watch that again at some point. So then we meet... Um, uh, the the dead body of Chrissy on the beach. Uh, interesting fact: it was a local hotel girl from the island of um, uh, from Martha's Vineyard, where they they shot the movie. Who was buried into the sand, <laughs> buried under the sand. It's her arm sticking out. And um, Brody comes over, and the kid who was you know hoping to have sex with her uh, also comes over, and he's like, I don't want to have sex with her anymore because she's just an arm. Um, so easier so, to no, pull. No, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> that's true yeah there's two sides to every scenario isn't there uh, Spielberg that's one of the shots that Spielberg doesn't like as well because the crabs that are on the arm he says aren't moving fast enough and if he could go back and reshoot it he would and he actually managed to get crabs and 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 crustacea like that moving fast on Temple of Doom that was his weird way of writing that wrong <laughs> <laughs> and the guy, that guy, Jonathan Philly, I believe his name is, who was um, who's the the boy who who desperately wanted to um, get in the water but was too drunk to uh, to do it. Um, he's uh, he's gone on to have quite a successful career in Hollywood. He's a producer now. He produced the Bruce Willis Denzel Washington movie The Siege. He produced American Gangster. He was an exec producer on Sex in the City, and most recently he produced um, Succession. That's ah, uh, yeah, very good. good. Oh, excellent. So um, he's done all right. He also is the guy who was responsible in Jaws for driving the boat that pulled the barrels at the end. So he's dragging those barrels at the end. So he, uh, he, he was a, a busy, busy man, busy man on Jaws, barrel puller and non-sex man. We, uh, we also uh, get to meet George, uh, Chief Brody uh, and his home life with um, Michael and Sean. Um and we get that nice bit of dialogue about in the yard with the car. Um, I like I like their relationship. It feels authentic. What do you think? I agree with you. Although I think his parenting is a bit patchy, because at this point he gets the, I couldn't I can never remember. So you just tell me when he's on the phone and they're like, "Oh, the body of Chrissy is washed up." Does he know that there's a shark because he lets his son go swimming in the sea? And that, to me, seems like he's taking his eye off the ball a little bit there. <laughs> no, he does not know there's a shark at that okay, point. Okay, fine. No. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, it's weird for me watching sort of Sean because he's this tiny little cute kid in this. And you're like, oh, my God. And obviously he survives. And then he survives two and three. And then he dies. So you're watching this kid uh, who's all cute. And you know that um, later in life he dies by having his arm ripped off and then eaten by a shark in Amity Harbour at the start of Jaws the Revenge. He's killed by vengeance, uh, is the name of the shark that kills him. Uh, <laughs> genuinely, it's called vengeance. It's, that's the name people have given it. In the novelization of uh, the, the, the Jaws world, um, the shark in Jaws the Revenge is the offspring of the shark in Jaws and the shark in Jaws too. Uh, that's why uh, it hates the uh, it hates the family. Um, it also is um, in the novelization of Jaws of Revenge. Uh, it's te- the, a, a witch doctor takes control of it, uh, who doesn't like the Brody family either, and that's why it goes after them. Out, please uh, don't say too much about Jaws Four because I really, oh. really, really want to do it on a future episode. All right, all right, all right, all right. Uh, yeah, we we have to. Um, 
So, uh, can I ask a question? What, what do you make of this idea that Brody doesn't go in the water? Did you was is there a reason for that, or is it just like never really explained? Because as a kid, I built up this narrative in my head that Chief Brody hates the water because he was involved in a shark attack himself at some point, which is why he's so scared. And I always thought when they're showing off each other's scars in yeah. the on the orca at the end, and he lifts up his top, he's got a scar there, mm. and that's from his own story and his own fear of the water. And he just doesn't ever want to talk about it even then. But then is that just his appendix being removed, Scar? Is it a joke? I don't know. <laughs> That's what I thought the same as you. Because the way he looks like he's about to say, check out my bad Scar. And it will explain all of this fear. I mean, you get one f- very funny line about his fear of the water, which he says is called drowning. That's really funny. Yeah. But yeah, there's no explanation. But I think I quite like that. Like, you don't need to know everything about your characters. You're allowed to sort of imprint things onto them. Okay. So yeah, um, he wants to he wants to close the beaches, doesn't he? Uh, he's uh, he goes. It's a shark attack, and then the coroner in the village, who was actually the the local doctor in Martha's Vineyard, uh, who they cast a lot of people um, locals in this movie. I'll try and mention some of them uh, as we go on, and um, and the mayor Murray Hamilton. Mayor Vaughan is like, we're a summer town. We need summer dollars. You can't close the beaches. What, you're going to do this on your own authority? Whose authority do I need? And so they're not allowed to close the beaches, uh, which is why the Kitna boy dies. Hmm. He is either the second or third victim, depending on where the Pippet, the dog, um, was eaten before him, which for me is possibly the most heartbreaking thing, watching that owner call his dog's name. Pippet, Pippet. I'm like... Oh, my God. Doesn't that upset you? Not you, Victoria. I know it doesn't upset you. Uh, you're like, good. Kill the dog. <laughs> oh, my God. Are you about to have a go at me? You watch You watch a mum look at the empty seat, scanning the horizon for her son, and that doesn't upset you. But someone's lost their dog, and I come out cold-hearted. <laughs> it is quite a, a, a sad thing. The you can, you can the visit boys. the... Well, the yeah. dog. I was going to say about the dog. You can actually visit the grave of that dog. Uh, (laughs) That dog in real life has a little tribute to it, Jaws star Pippet, on on its gravestone, which I saw in a documentary. Why? He lives on Pippet. Oh, that's good to know. Um, The bit where Alex Kittner's mum, Mrs. Kittner, obviously, um, she's like, oh, don't go, your fingers are pruning. The first time uh, they shot that scene, the only note she'd been given, because a lot of the dialogue was improvised by the cast, and that she was sort of told, uh, you've got to stop, um, you're trying to stop your son uh, going in the water. And that was the only note she was given. And so she was shooting it and he was like, mom, can I go back in the water? She's like, no, you absolutely can't. Uh, you're, you're pruning, your fingers are pruning, you can't go in the water. And they went, cut. And they had to come over to her and go, uh-huh. you do understand though, eventually you do let him go in the water. Otherwise we don't have a film. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I still appeared online not, uh, not too long ago of... Um, an alternate death for the Kitna boy. Um, have you seen this still online where the, it's a black and white still of the shark's head looming out of the water behind him and coming down on top of him? Uh, and it looks absolutely horrifying. And you see loads more shark. Did, did either of you see that? No. No. It's, um, yeah. So uh, after Spielberg had left the island and the shark was starting to work better, they... Um, they shot, um, they shot the Kittner boy. Joe Alves um, shot the Kittner boy's death, and it was um, 
and they decided it was just too much, too graphic, uh, because it was like that you saw the shark chomp down on this dummy. They replaced his body, the actual actor, with a dummy, and the shark comes down on it, and then they ended up only using certain bits of that because it was really scary. But if you look at the still, it looks awful. Um, and then at that point, we get Matt Hooper turning up. Um, Richard Dreyfus is brilliant in this movie. Agree or disagree? I agree. I thought we had um, Quint shows up before Hooper. Does he not? Or is it? Oh, does he? Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Is he? Did... We got the he fingernails the on the offer. chalkboard. Oh, yeah. Mm. And his little helper who gets no lines in the final cut, who is another local guy, you know, his little mate who's always standing next to him. Yeah. Herschel West is his name. Like he had some lines in um in some deleted scenes that you could find where I think later on, just before Quint goes out to catch um the main shark, he quits because he's like, Absolutely not, I quit. <laughs> but, uh, but it's it's a really great introduction for Quint with the fingernails down the chalkboard. But but the background to that is is that they that Spielberg wanted to have him introduced in a cinema watching Moby Dick and laughing at all <laughs> the scenes with Moby Dick sort of maniacally so that other people in the cinema left because he was freaking them out. But Gregory Peck wouldn't let them use the footage because he thought the film was bad and he was bad in it and wanted it to go away. Um, I think this is a great introduction, but I weirdly, you know how all the movie brats are friends with each other. That intro that he wanted is a bit like Max Cady in Cape Fear, do you not think, when he's watching Snow White and laughing maniacally? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was, when you were describing it, I was like, I've seen that yeah. somewhere. Yeah, of course. So I wonder, I wonder if Scorsese just said to him, I'm going to use that in my film. Yeah. It's a great introduction. And it's a great line. Um, the bit where he goes, I'll... Find it for three, but I'll catch it and kill it for ten. <laughs> He's not a pirate, but uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, uh, that was um, a line written by John Milius. Um, he that was his contribution to the script. Um, I'll, I'll tell you a bit more about him when we come to the Indianapolis uh, speech. So. Quint offers this, the townspeople say no, and then Matt Hooper turns up at the bit where Mrs. Kittner has put a bounty on the shark. $3,000, uh, um, she said, kill this, k- get, kill this bloody shark that's killed my boy. And so all these fishermen turn up in a really funny scene where they, it's just a free-for-all, like the fishing armada goes <laughs> out. Um, and well, it's worth noting that the guy who greets Hooper when he gets off his boat and arrives, the big guy who looks like Quint a little bit, who goes, hello there, young fella. How are you? Do you know the guy I mean? Ben Gardner is the character. Big guy. Yeah, well aware of him. Well aware. Great. Yeah. So uh, another local played by Craig Kingsbury, who Robert Shaw basically took so much of his dialogue and his mannerisms and his voice to build his character, Quint. So Quint is, in a huge number of ways, based on this real man who's also in the movie, playing Ben Gardner. Um, I believe that Craig Kingsby's daughter uh, talks about their relationship and how Craig Kingsbury loved to spin a yarn and would tell Robert Shaw loads of stories that Robert Shaw believed 
Like, like the tall tales, Robert Shaw just took as fact. And then she talks about how in an interview she saw Robert Shaw saying, and there's footage of Robert Shaw saying in an interview, uh, there's, um, there's a lot of incest on this island. Incest is one of the biggest uh, crimes uh, on the island here in Martha's Vineyard. And the journalist is like, really? And he's like, oh, yes, just a lie that Craig Kingsbury <laughs> told him that he then repeated to a journalist. So we've got our three leads all sort of doing disparate things at the moment. We get the brilliant uh, scene where uh, Hooper looks at the body and goes, this was no boating accident. Um <laughs> really affected me as a kid like that the autopsy scene i'd not seen an autopsy scene before the bit where you just see him lift up one of her arms and part of it's missing um at this stage were you guys enjoying your jaws experience as much as me yeah i like i'd forgotten about the autopsy scene and i like the i mean it's really dark but when they're like oh let's get chrissy's body and they basically bring out like a tiny fucking bit of tupperware because that's all that's left to squeeze into this box that's quite upsetting and fun <laughs> Um, yeah, it was it's, it's, it's so good. Um, then um, we've got the dinner scene. Oh wait, sorry. We should do we should do the uh, the shark capturing scene. So uh, some of these fishermen turn up with a huge um, tiger shark that they string up in the docks. They're like, "This is a shark," and even Brody thinks this is a shark. He's like, uh, "This is a shark. We don't get sharks like these in these waters." Hooper's like, "Look, it's a big shark, but the bite radius doesn't match the bite radius on the body." Um, so that shark that they strung up there, they were promised that uh, the fishermen off Martha's Vineyard could catch a actual shark that size for them to use in that scene. Uh, they couldn't. Uh, mm-hmm. they, they just simply couldn't. So they had to phone someone in Florida, and part of the production team went down to Florida and paid some locals in Florida $10,000 to catch a shark for them, and then they needed to get it back in time for the shoot. So they put it in a big box of ice and put it on a private jet and flew <laughs> that shark from Florida back up to Massachusetts for that shot. And by uh, midday on the first day of shooting, it had started to smell, and it had to be up there for four days. And apparently, like, there was a huge gap downwind of it until you had to start shooting because it stank so bad. And the bit where they're dissecting the shark and they're cutting open its belly, and Carl Gottlieb, the the, the writer, says that it was just muscle memory for Roy Scheider and Matt Hooper when they're going, oh, that's disgusting, because they remembered how bad it smelled. Because obviously that's not actually the shark at that point. Um, So at this point, we know it's not the shark, We've had the pier scene as well. We didn't mention that where the two guys are fishing with the holiday roast and the thing turns around. A little interesting fact that John Landis actually helped put together the set uh, for that because he was there visiting Spielberg, very young John Landis, and he helped hammer together the jetty for that pier attack, which I think is quite a nice bit of trivia. Yeah, Spielberg, for that scene, Spielberg originally wanted it to be a group of boats on the shore and their masts start moving one by one as you can tell that the shark is swimming underneath each of the boats and is the is big enough to move all the boats. But that ended up being too expensive. So they came up with this idea, which was much cheaper. Oh, wow. And he said he did it because he wanted the he wanted the visual of the pier literally turning around and following someone, which is <laughs> which is which is such a surreal uh, image, but really very effective. Yeah. And there's a story about uh, filming that scene and a couple of guys, um, a couple of locals. I think one of them was from Boston and one of them was actually from Martha's Vineyard, who he got to shoot that scene, weren't very good um, at remembering their lines. They were trying really hard, but they just kept screwing things up on the first day. 
and um, and the following day when they had to be in the water, uh, one of them had to be in the water. Spielberg said that he did more takes than he needed to punish them for not being good the day before. Although he says he did it subconsciously. He didn't intentionally do it, but he thinks maybe that's what it was, uh, which is uh, which is nice. Um, it's nice. So I think we're sort of nearing the bit where we get them all. Um, oh, no. Before we get them all on the boat, there's the... Uh, the big scene with Peter Benchley on the beach where the beaches are staying open, but Brody is allowed more cops and shark spotters and all the rest of it. And no one's going in the water. And um, I like, I like this scene. How, how do you feel about this scene? I really like when the I, I'm a bit baffled as to why the mayor is so keen that people swim because I understand the mayor's character that's like this is a summer town we need summer dollars but it's an island and it's full so people are spending money presumably sitting on the beach having an ice cream doing whatever and then he <laughs> sort of forces that scared shit scared family into the sea and the look on the grandma the mum's whoever she is the face of that woman where she's like come on kids let's go for a swim um <laughs> It's really awful that he's kind of like emotionally blackmailed her into the sea. But I didn't understand why the sea has to be full. Why does it matter? Or does it just upset him that the sea is... I don't, I don't get it. <laughs> well, it, it it's, it's all about the feng shui of the beach. It just it, it feels <laughs> yeah. like there's too much going on on the sand and not enough in the sea. <laughs> I, guess he, I guess he's seen the TV reporters and he's like, you know, people watching this who might think, oh, I'm going to come to the... Island are going to go. Oh, no one's going in the sea. I won't oh, go. Oh, okay, okay, that makes well, sense. maybe that yeah. that mayor has been in the news basically, or, or certainly on you know on social media because you know we're recording this when we're under lockdown, and and we what you know he's he's a, a classic character of putting the economy above safety and and something that we're seeing on the news now with beaches being full and people in lockdown not being able to quite understand it, and so um, that quote when he says it's a beautiful day, the beaches are open and people are having a wonderful time is it's sort of quite chilling now when you're seeing it on the telly and scratching your head. Yeah, I do think um, I do think it's an odd choice um, around this scene as well when um, they've got the photograph of the shark that they caught in the water and it's up by the ferry terminal when all the holidaymakers are getting off the ferry. There's a, a poster of the shark that they've caught, yeah. uh, the tiger shark they caught. I'm just like that seems like an odd thing to do because. You know, sure, if someone has seen the shark news and gone, there's a shark there, and then they see that post, like, oh, great, actually, they've caught it. But if you don't know that there's a shark there or was a shark there, you see that, you're going to be like, fucking hell, there are massive sharks in the sea around here. <laughs> That's the thing. Are they actually lone creatures? I don't know, because I would think, oh, if there's one, there's probably another one. So you're all right. <laughs> I'm not going to bother. <laughs> Well, they get to call it a rogue, don't they? I've, I've, yeah. I'm sure. I don't know if it's an actual term. I'm assuming it is, but uh, but yeah, it's a rogue. It's yeah. a rogue, which sort of makes it sound a little bit surly, like it's got a bit of stubble. It's smoking. It's like oh, uh, a bit sexy, well, probably. Get... Yeah, <laughs> do what I like. <laughs> yeah. Um, just before we go out uh, with um, with the gang. Um, on the Orca, uh, we should talk about one of the great jump scares in in cinema, which is uh, when Hooper and Brody are out on Hooper's very expensive boat that he's bought himself, and then um, they discover Ben Gardner's head, and it pops out of a hole. Um, did you jump? Yes, <laughs> yes, I did. I did, but I did, but it was something that I was really, really waiting for because it was what my mum and dad had told me about. 
they said to me, oh, the scariest scene in Jaws doesn't involve the shark. It's a scene when a head pops out of a boat and it's so frightening. It made us scream in the cinema and watch out for that scene. So I think I built that up so much in my mind. It could never quite live up to um, <laughs> what I saw. But um, yeah, that is obviously maybe the most famous jump in the movie or one of the top two anyway. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm like you a bit, Chris. I mean, I've I've seen it so many times. I've seen Jaws about 20 times now. So I, I know it's coming, but I, and I don't jump anymore, sadly. But I do remember the first time I saw it and I shit myself. It <laughs> terrified me. And apparently Carl Gottlieb and Steven Spielberg used to um, go into cinemas that Jaws was playing and stand at the back. And they used to time their arrival for the Ben Gardner scene just so they could watch an entire room full of people literally jump out of their seats at that scene um, because Spielberg had spent quite a lot of time getting it right. He didn't like the original version he'd shot uh, in the uh, tank because uh, they did some shooting in a tank at MGM. And so they, they filmed it in a tank. It didn't work for him. And so he reshot it in his editor, Werner Field's swimming pool out back. It's a very famous story that he reshot it in a swimming pool and paid for it himself just to get the timing right of it appearing and getting the best scare he possibly could out of it. Um, side note, Universal did eventually pick up the tab. So, And what's interesting there as well um, is that the when they first screened the movie for test audiences, the scene later on uh, when the shark comes out of the water, when, um, when uh, Brody says we're going to need a bigger boat, that got the biggest scream in the cinema. And Spielberg mm. had a problem with this scene, thought he'd not got it right, the Ben Gardner one, went back and did what Alex said. And then this got a big scream. And it meant that the scream later wasn't as big, didn't work as well, because Spielberg said by that point, because of this scene, the, Spielberg, uh, <clears throat> the audience no longer trusted him as a director. They were waiting for him <laughs> to do something mm. like this. And so it's interesting. It, it lessened the impact of that one, um, which he was upset about, but... I mean, it meant he got two screams rather than one. It was just one was slightly less loud. Yeah, it's a, it's a little bit of a grey area sort of finding out because I, I read somewhere that actually the first Ben Gardner head appearing, he didn't really shoot uh, for a jump scare intentionally. Like, it, he just sort of shot it as this head floated out. And I, I don't think he anticipated it to be such a, a jump moment for the audience. And so that's another reason why he reshot it. But I, I can't imagine that's entirely true because uh, obviously, you know, Richard Dreyfus screams in that scene and drops the bloody tooth. Uh, um, let's get on to the boat then. Uh, unless anyone else has any shore-based <clears throat> fun to have. Um, I mean, obviously, there's the the scene where Mrs. Kittner slaps Brody, which is an iconic moment. Um, I think the actress, uh, uh, Lee Fierro, um, who sadly passed away not so long ago, she... Um, she asked for all the profanity to be taken out of her dialogue in that scene. She didn't like profanity, um, which uh, was done for her. And uh, for years and years afterwards, uh, fans of Jaws would come up to her when they saw her on the street walking around and asked to be slapped by her, <laughs> like as a thing. She said That's it was a nice little sideline if you can yeah. get it. She, she said it was mainly young men as well. That's what I'm talking <laughs> yeah. about. <laughs> Um, uh, beyond that, shall we all go to sea? Are you ready? Yes, let's go to it the, seems let's about get, time. Um, the let's get pissed so, and go fishing section. Why is this such a brilliant climax? Thoughts? What? What? what it, I mean, I love it, but I'd love to know what you guys think of the, the final half hour, 40 minutes, uh, 45 minutes of, of this movie. 
Well, it's it's where we fuse Chris. into. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for asking, yes. Alex. <laughs> Are you serious? <laughs> I'm laughing, but I'm mad. So can I continue? <laughs> go, go, yeah, go. of course. Should we take a break now, Alex? Alex, should we take a break now? <laughs> oh, shit, I totally forgot. Yeah, um, we'll just take a quick break and oh be right God. back with you after oh these God. ads. Oh, my God. Oh my perfect, God. perfect. That was perfect. I knew you'd forgotten, Al, so that gave me a good opportunity to smack in there. Mm, lovely stuff. Really lovely, yeah. Um Right. Do you know what? I've done, I forgot what I was going to say. I'm sure it wasn't that exciting. Um, I tell you what, I think a man should uh, head up this section since it's, <laughs> since it's about three men who mistrust each other and bond and grow closer. So why don't you men tell me what that feels like? Because I could never know. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. He just says, how many holes does a straw have? Zero, one, or two. The internet can't figure it out, so I've done what any sane person would do. Ask the Luke and the Pete. Join me, Pete Donaldson, and Luke Moore for an unplanned half hour every Monday and Thursday as we talk about, well, anything really, from your emails to life's great mysteries to this guy. The noise you're going to hear sounds like a man being interrupted by a car. He isn't being interrupted by the car. He is making the car sound. How on earth is he doing that? 
How does he make that noise? Listen now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Beep, 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 beep. The Luke and Pete Show is a Stakhanov production. Go on, Chris. Well, you start with what, this. Have you brought us back I from the like break? I have been talking a lot. Have you brought us back from the break? Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, we're back from the break. It sort of happens organically. Welcome back. Okay, well, I feel like <laughs> people have spent that whole ad break waiting to hear what uh, Vicky's opinion was. So, Vicky, take it away. Oh, um, <laughs> I can't work like this. I can't do it. Um, all I was going to say was it's where the we're chasing a monster film turns into a drama because it's three men who mistrust each other who start to bond by getting pissed with sort of time honored way um and it's about the dynamic between the three of them as well as which changes on this boat so they're very different when they when they get back to land not only have they caught the shock but obviously the dynamic has changed and their characters have changed that's why it's good yeah yeah, it, it is good. And, and that mistrust that you talk about, I mean, like, I think we were talking about it on The Goonies um, where uh, Joe Pantoliano and uh, Robert Darvey uh, didn't like each other and their animosity came through in their bickering. And famously, Richard Dreyfus and Robert Shaw did not get on particularly well. Um, Robert Shaw uh, felt that Richard Dreyfus needed taking down a peg or two. He was very full of himself and took it upon himself to wind Richard Dreyfus up, and Richard Dreyfus took the bait frequently. And I think it reached ahead, as I hear it, it reached ahead um, when Robert Shaw one day was getting onto the boat, uh, carrying a glass of bourbon because he liked his he liked his drink, and Richard he asked for help from Richard Dreyfus, and Richard Dreyfus uh, went sure and took the bourbon off him and threw it over the side of the boat, and all the drinkers who saw this went. <sighs> Oh no! Yeah, don't make it um, personal. Don't do that. That is law, <laughs> right? And um, and then um, and then Robert Shaw, uh, as a way of revenge, um, when they were shooting the orca being dragged through the waves, um, got the hose that was soaking Brody and Hooper with water from behind the camera and pointed it at Richard Dreyfuss's face. And um, Richard <laughs> Dreyfuss's words were, "That's when I lost my sense of humour." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Dreyfus said he, that, that, that Shaw had his number, basically, from the off and managed to needle him and wind him up the whole way through, which which Spielberg used, you know? he was As you said, he was able to use it. I, I think why this stuff works so well is you've got this perfect dramatic triangle as well, haven't you? You've got these three archetypes. You've got Quint, who represents the, the primitive man. You've got Hooper, who's the intellectual environmentalist. And then you've got Brody, who's the everyman, mediating between these two opposing forces and i think that's why it's so effective um you've got you've got a, a war against um uh, a shark but also the a battle between these three men yeah do you um do you, I, I i for me i i sort of i always related to matt hooper he was my favorite if you were picking a side um uh it was uh, as far as the characters go I, I really liked matt hooper yeah i mean he scared me Sorry, uh, Quint, Quint, scared, Quint scared me, so it couldn't be him. And then, yeah. uh, well, and Hooper's funny as well. He brings levity to it, so he's, he's instantly more likable. Yeah. Um, the Indianapolis speech. Um, there's two things we should talk about here. First is obviously this is where uh, the shark not working 
uh, is one of the greatest things that could ever happen to a movie because it was represented by these barrels and never have barrels been as terrifying as they are in this climax. Uh, you know, uh, yeah. he can't stay under with three. Not three he can't. Wow, just, just three barrels bobbing about in the ocean and I'm fucking petrified. So uh, <laughs> well done, everyone involved in that. And then the Indianapolis speech. Um, mm. uh, Vicky, as a screenwriter... What do you think? It, see, it is amazing, but I also, because I, I know that it's a true story and I knew that before I watched Jaws, it's it's like a treat to see a fiction, that's not a fictionalised version, what am I trying to say? A dramatised version of something that I know is true, but reading it outside of like a shark facts book, like we've got a lot of shark facts book in this house because of the children. And obviously they try and like, gloss over how awful that would have been, that situation. So hmm. it's a, yeah, to see a very a proficient actor with great dialogue tell you that story is really good. It's um, it's an interesting one because a, a lot of people the, uh, the 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 story of the Indianapolis and this this the the ship that delivered the bomb and being torpedoed and its mission being secret and men in the water and sharks killing so many of them, um, it wasn't known. Uh, I think it was revealed. Uh, to the American people shortly before Jaws came out. Uh, but for a lot of people, Jaws was the first place that they ever heard this story yeah. about the USS Indianapolis. And um, the story goes that Steven Spielberg's cleaner um, was due to come in and she didn't come in. And he called her and said, why aren't you coming in? And she was like, I'm, my son was actually on the Indianapolis and I watched Jaws last night and I, I just can't come in today because she found out what happened from watching Jaws. Now, it sounds like, you know, one of those stories, but I, it might be true. Well, and, and it's not, I believe it's not in the book, is it? So, um, so in the book, Quint is just obsessed with killing sharks, whereas this gives us a key to, to understanding Quint, which is obviously much more satisfying as a viewer. Yeah. Well, yeah. It hadn't been uh, that the reason uh, the reason it's not in the book and why people say Peter Benchley would probably have put it in the book was because, like I say, it wasn't when he wrote the book. This it wasn't out there. Mm. It was between the publication of the book, the writing of the book, and this movie that this story became common knowledge. Mm. Um, so it's one of those speeches that everyone has a different story on who wrote it. Um, the version that I think uh, I believe is that it was come up with by one of the uncredited writers on the movie, Howard Sackler, um, a playwright, Pulitzer Prize winner. Uh, he came up with the idea, and then both uh, all, all, all the sorts of people worked on it, Steven Spielberg, Carl Gottlieb, Peter Benchley, um, uh, John Milius. And to read the Jaws log, which is Carl Gottlieb's book on the subject, he talks about how... Uh, for some reason, John Milius is now credited as having written that speech. And he's even seen Steven Spielberg in documentaries talk about how John Milius wrote it. But for Carl Gottlieb's money, the author of that scene is Robert Shaw, who took away about 10 pages of notes and research and coalesced it all into this speech that we see in the film. And <laughs> he does sort of make a point of going... That is the truth, because who are you going to believe? Uh, the writer who was there on the day that tells you someone else wrote it or the writer who wasn't there and claims that he did. And that's why he says Robert Shaw wrote it and not John Millius, who's claiming he did. 
there's a there's a there's a podcast series called Inside Jaws, all about the making of this movie, and uh, they recently released an episode with Carl Gottlieb, a, a new interview with him, and some names that he mentioned wow. who were involved with the writing of the speech, which are, were new to me. He said that um, he said that Spielberg also sent it to Robert Zemeckis, Bob Gale, George Lucas, and Paul Schrader. Who all? Uh, who all? Oh, sorry, how hard is it to write a speech? Why does it have to go to so many fucking people? Uh, he said that they all sent back their ideas and thoughts. But yeah, as, Got- as Gottlieb tells it, it's kind of what you said, Alex. You know, he said that he said that Sackler wrote two paragraphs, Milius wrote nine pages. There were all these other bits and pieces, and it was Shaw that pulled them together. And Shaw actually came round to the bungalow that Spielberg and Gottlieb were sharing during the shoot um, a couple of nights before and performed it for them. And that's when they together decided, yeah, this is the version, is what you've come up with. Yeah. Yeah, and it took, I think they shot it over two days. On the first day, I think Steven Spielberg was apparently a bit upset with Robert Shaw because uh, he'd been drinking at lunch and he did a really passionate reading, but that wasn't right. And then on the second day, he did it cold sober and um, it was great, perfect. But actually, the one we see in the film is cut together from a drunk Robert Shaw and a sober Robert Shaw. And you can't really tell because he's that bloody good in this movie. (laughs) Uh, Drinking. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then the other famous line, which it would be remiss of us not to mention is you're going to need a bigger boat. Um, (laughs) They talk about it as an ad lib. Um, it is an ad lib um, of sorts. He didn't improvise it there and then on the spot, didn't Roy Scheider? Um, he um, he'd been. It was a, it was actually a phrase that was being thrown around the set by the crew uh, because they needed bigger boats to literally ship um, equipment, and they weren't being paid. Uh, there wasn't enough money to actually pay for these bigger boats from the production budget, and so it became a sort of statement about money as well. Like you're going to need a bigger boat, meaning you're going to need to pay more money. And Roy Scheider kept dropping it in at various points in the film, but that's the point at which it completely worked. And that's why it is there in the final cut. And, and, and I think something interesting about that is, is the editor, Verna Fields, who I think is one of the unsung heroes of this story. She said that, that mm. they didn't know it was funny and they didn't think it would get a laugh. That was a serious line. <laughs> and when they tested it with audiences, people laughed. They didn't realize it was a, not just a laugh, a big laugh because it didn't read that way. And so they actually had to go back and raise the volume in the edit of his delivery of that line because people were still murmuring and making noises from the appearance of the shark a few seconds before and were missing it. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I think the whole film, I think they were always, I think that the, they were surprised at how funny the film was. Um, uh, Carl Gottlieb says no one really thought it was funny apart from him as they were shooting it. And then he was proved right. Uh, afterwards because of all the laughs it was getting. I mean, the bit at the start where Ellen Brody is flicking through the book and like Chief Brody's telling Michael to get out of his boat. And she's like, well, it's work. He's never going to go in the sea again after what he's leave him alone. Let him stay in the boat. And then she flicks onto the picture of the shark ramming its head through a boat. And she goes, Michael, listen to your father, get out of the boat. I was like, that's killer. <laughs> that's a killer lie. That's great. That's very funny. Um, Yeah. So, uh, nominated for a lot of Oscars. Oh, wait, we should do the shot blown up. Sorry, <laughs> I, I flicked forward. Let's not bother with uh, the end of the film. Blows up. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, the shot blows up. I've done it. Uh, um, yeah, uh, I'm just checking, ch- checking to see whether we covered everything before the shot blows up. Yeah, the shot blows up. Um, you got, you got Carl Rizzo. Quinn's death really upset me. Were you going to mention Carl Rizzo? 
of course I was going to mention Carl Rizzo. <laughs> um, yeah, Carl Rizzo uh, is uh, the closest anyone came to an actual fatality uh, in the making of Jaws. <laughs> Uh, he genuinely nearly died, and he he wasn't even in Martha's Vineyard. He was in Australia. So Ron and Valerie Taylor are two uh, famous uh, shark conservationists and um, experts, and they were asked to uh, shoot some real-life footage of sharks in um, Australia uh, for the film. And so they were like, yeah, we've got sharks here, but we don't have sharks that are 25 feet long. So, um, you know, the scale won't work. And they were like, well, we'll get you a smaller actor. And so they got this former jockey, Carl Rizzo, and they built him a small cage and downsized all the scales so the sharks looked bigger. And they, they and Carl Rizzo, uh, they were, he wanted to work and he wanted to be involved in the film and he wanted to be involved in movie land. And so they went, have you ever scuba dived? And Carl Rizzo went, Yes, that was a lie. <laughs> he <laughs> apparently he'd only ever been in the water once before and never dived. Um, and so he went, yes, and like they trained him and he was like, okay. And to his credit, he basically went, I will get in this cage with these sharks in the water. But he was understandably nervous and there were sharks, giant great whites swimming around. And he was sort of, they would go, get in the cage. And he was like, no. And they were like, get in the cage. And he sort of like withheld getting in the cage until the last minute. And as he started to get in, a giant shark got caught in the steel wires that held the cage in the water and started thrashing about. And you can see the footage in the film, and it's used for the bit where the shark is destroying the cage that Matt Hooper was in. And yeah. there's no one in there because at that point, Matt Hooper is actually in the film, swum away. Yeah. But in real life, it was just an empty cage because Carl Rizzo hadn't actually got in it at that point, and the shark completely destroys it. And they say, Ron and Valerie Taylor say, if he had been in that cage, he would be dead. Oh, in my fact, God. That's it terrible. was only only his reluctance to get in the fucking cage that saved his life. God, I love that. Not for him, that's terrible. But do you see how it's almost, a bit grand, almost Shakespearean? Because if he'd had the training, he would have got in because he'd be like, fucking shark, no problem. But he yep. lied, and the lie saved his life, yeah? Wow. <laughs> On it, Throughout research in this film, I am surprised there has not been a film that dramatises the making of Jaws. I, <laughs> I, it's such a fantastic story of the, 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 the little engine that could. It's incredible. <laughs> yeah, well, there's so many blooming documentaries, as I've discovered this week, about it. They've done that enough times. I, I know. I won't lie. I spent more time than I ever have researching a show <laughs> for this week, just so, just so I could know everything. Mm-hmm. Um, even though I knew it already, I needed to know it again. Uh, right then, I'm just looking through my notes. Um, so, uh, Quint dies. Uh, very upsetting as a kid. The blood coming out of his mouth. Yeah. Um, and uh, the signpost. Uh, earlier where he sort of sticks the machete in the edge of the ship and then he grabs it later to get the shark and every time I see that machete go into the ship and he just puts it there I'm like yeah you're gonna need that and it ain't gonna help you buddy (laughs) um I really wish Quint didn't die I know he had to but I don't know it upsets me so uh yeah smile you son of a bitch um is it oh wait did I just misquote that is it, that's what he says. Yeah, no, it's smile, oh, you no, son of a d- bitch, yeah. He doesn't actually say bitch, I don't think. I don't think he gets to. 
Yeah, he fires the bullet on bitch, maybe? Yeah. I'm sorry, I got confused with Jaws 2 there because Jaws 2 is open wide, isn't it, when he puts the electrical cable in the shark's mouth? Yeah, fine. Fine. Um, Okay. Got to be right. Got to be right about these things. (laughs) Don't. Don't. The way you said that made me think, do I though? Have I wasted my time being right about these things? No. No, I haven't. Um, so any more for any more or shall we talk about the aftermath of this film well I, I think the, no? the the interesting about that ending is that is that Spielberg told because the, the ending's you know slightly boring in the book I think that the, the shark basically drowns um, thanks to the barrels and and um, what Quint was planning but, but obviously Spielberg wanted something more spectacular came up with this idea eventually told him that would never happen in real life that wouldn't work and Spielberg said to him I don't care if I've had the audience for two hours, if they're buying into this, I want them on their feet at their climax and they will follow me. And that comes up again in Jurassic Park as well. Spielberg sometimes doesn't care what's realistic, what's believable, what would happen in real life. He's going for the big moment. And that's, um, you know, that's what makes these films work ultimately, because as an audience, mm-hmm. we want the big moment. Yeah. And in, in, also in the in the book, um, uh, Quint uh, isn't. Bitten in half, pretty much, by the shark and dragged into the uh, the salty depths. He um, is uh, he gets his foot caught in the rope of one of the harpoons he's fired and is dragged under by the shark and drowns. So yeah, um, again, again, this sort of fits into your theory that uh, the uh, the book is better than the film. Uh, the film is better than the book, rather, Chris. Yeah. So, um, uh, Vicky, how did you feel about the shark blowing up? Uh, it was wicked. I mean, the thing is, it it doesn't look like a real shark. So the fact that it gets blown up, that is not the point when I'd be like, hang on a second, that would never happen because it doesn't look at all like an actual shark. So it doesn't matter how you kill it. To me, you should kill it in a bonkers way because it's already a, a mad puppet. Yeah. <laughs> it's um, it's a shame. that. So what happened with Bruce, uh, one of the things that I'm excited about, and I think any Jaws fan might be excited about, so the the, the cast that they used uh, for Bruce, there were three Bruce mechanical sharks uh, that all failed to work at some point, but in the end gave us Jaws. And then uh, after the movie was a hit, Universal cast a fourth one in fiberglass from the same mould and hung it at Universal Studios. And it was there, I think, until about 1990, and then they replaced it with the one that I saw, uh, which was not the original mould. But the mold, it was it's the last surviving Bruce in inverted commas, and they took it out of Universal Studios and they put it in a junkyard. And only recently, it was uh, Greg Nicotero, the makeup artist, uh, who rebuilt it uh, and sorted it all out. And it's going to be on display in the new Academy Museum that's opening, uh, maybe not <laughs> still, uh, when they said it was in December this year. So you're going to be able to go and visit Bruce. Which is, I'm going to do that. Does anyone want to come? <laughs> Team trip, yeah, yeah. Let's do it. Let's do it. Yeah. I mean, it is kind of when you think about what they decided to do, which was sink a giant air-powered, air pressure-powered, like huge twelve-ton metal arm on a dolly, like that on on casters under the ocean, like they sank it onto the, a sandy bottom ocean floor in the actual sea with everything like tides like currents, like salt, kelp, all of that, and then stuck a shark on it. And at any point, didn't think, 
this is a this is a ridiculous thing to be doing. <laughs> I, fi- I I find it amazing that they got that far into it and then had to make it work. Otherwise, they wouldn't have a movie. Uh, it's it's just an insane thing to do. Do you not when you hear about it, when you read about it? Do you not sort of think what were they thinking? Did they not think this is the it's the fucking sea. <laughs> It's the sea. <laughs> yeah, but you've got two people in charge of the whole thing who thought you could cast a real shark. So <laughs> if you're starting from that point of insanity, maybe by the time you're waist deep in the ocean trying to get this the biggest piece of, like a car-sized piece of equipment to work, you'd be like, I think we could pull this off. <laughs> oh, well, they pulled it off uh, in a different way to possibly what they intended, but it's still a freaking masterpiece. It was nominated for Best Picture, uh, did not win, didn't get nominated for Best Director, uh, much to Steven Spielberg's surprise, and there's some footage of him going, oh, they didn't get nominated, and he genuinely looks a bit pissed off, and rightly so, because oh, what an achievement. Um <coughs> Um, and then the main thing, the main legacy of Jaws that we should touch on is the fact that after the second screening of it, the second preview screening before it had opened, uh, which happened in Long Beach, California, uh, the then heads of Universal, Len Wasserman and Sid Scheinberg, uh, Scheinberg um, they saw the audience's reaction to the film and... They walked out of the cinema and the foyer was so noisy with people talking about the film and how amazing it was that they ended up in the men's bathroom at the cinema and it was there in the men's bathroom that they decided immediately that they were going to change the way they released this from starting in big cities and rolling it out slowly into smaller regions, which is the way films were released, and instead do 500 screens all at once, a wide release, and it had never been done before. It wasn't how movies were released, and that became the template for how movies were released after Jaws, the summer blockbuster release schedule, Jaws becoming the godfather of the summer blockbuster. I believe I got that right. What? <laughs> Did I get that right? About what? About Jaws being the, the summer blockbuster. That's how it's the, the, the godfather of the summer blockbuster. I was just sort of double-checking. I was, you know, I just didn't want to seem like a an oracle on the the, the, the summer blockbuster template because well, that would be a weird oracle to be. Well, they did something a bit weird, though. They made another decision. I don't know if this contradicts what you said, Al, but, but there was a point when it was going to open on 900 screens at once, and then they actually dropped yes. that number because Wasserman said, we don't just want to take the weekend. We want to take the summer. So they they would actually as you, uh, you they would actually slowly bring it out and and move it from city to city so that it, it just lasted for months rather than a long weekend. Yes, I don't think that contradicts what I say. I think it's it's kind of the same thing. Yeah. I think the final number they decided on was um half, they did half it though. You're, you're absolutely right, and they did own that summer. It was um it was a, a phenomenon. Yeah, well, the, I the think hype- he also then was the one. Sorry, go on. Well, it's a film about hype and hysteria, and that that was reflected in what happened in real life in terms of it, it rolling out. And I think, like Psycho and The Exorcist before it, it became it became a matter of of audiences wanting to test themselves by going to see it. It was like, do you have the guts to go and watch this film? And it hasn't happened that often yeah. recently. I was trying to think back. The Blair Witch Project did that, where it was almost like a challenge to go and see that yeah. and last through it. Um, but but Jaws is is the real template for that as well. And it's that weird thing. There's never been a movie like it. It's, you can't really compare. Um, 
in terms of sort of like movies about creatures under the sea that are genuinely horror films, which Jaws is. Like there, there isn't one, you know, your Deep Blue Seas, your Megs, other shark-based movies. They, they, they either don't come close or they're sort of more action-orientated. Um, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I sat through Orca Killer Whale in the hope that it might be something like Jaws. It's, <laughs> it's not. Never, never watch it. R- Richard Harris, bless him, is, is no Robert Shaw. <laughs> I, I am surprised they haven't done a 40 Years Later sequel um, ignoring two, three, and four in the way they've kind of done with Halloween and various other um, intellectual properties that are this big. Uh, but um, I feel like it's just a matter of time that we will see more Jaws sooner or later. Do you really? I just don't see how they could because now people want to see everything. People are going to want to see the shark. Like, uh, you know... It, there is no way of hiding the shark, and the minute you don't, I just and if you don't hide the shark, then it's not really a Jaws movie. The more of the shark you see, the it doesn't. I, I don't know how it would work. I'm not saying it would be good, and and as Spielberg himself said, he doesn't think this would be. If Jaws was released now, it wouldn't be as successful because audiences wouldn't wait so long to see the shark. But um, I'm not sure I agree and, with that either. Yeah, and also. I, I think people, I, I think to go back to what Peter eventually said, as I was saying at the start, I just think people are a lot more sympathetic to an endangered species and dwindling numbers of sharks and the grotesque practice of shark finning that, yeah. you know, to have a villainous shark isn't really palatable for people yeah. anymore. Like there are not that many sharks left or there's not as many as there should be and possibly because of Jaws. So I don't, I think, I think it would be irresponsible. And I think people are very conscious of that to make another movie where the shark is uh, like fair game basically mm. exactly see i do care about animals so you can fuck off you do. yes i give oh, a shit no. about shark i don't oh. really that's the thing i don't oh. i don't oh, okay <laughs> i'm trying i just oh i don't care oh. um, it's a roller coaster being your friend a fucking roller coaster <laughs> for a minute there i was like that was beautiful oh it was a lie so oh you're doubly awful i know <laughs> and i bet you really enjoyed the shallows so you're contradicting yourself there as well <laughs> uh, I don't have to take this abuse anymore. <laughs> uh, uh, right, so um, uh, that is pretty much it. Let's do the the um, the bits, shall we? Um, yeah. Guys, what was your best scene in Jaws? Uh, Victoria, would you like to start? Yes, I would. It's not a scene, not to be difficult. It's part of a scene, but I love it so much that I think my love for it makes uh sort of beefs up the whole if you will and, and makes it more of a scene in my head anyway that's quite a big introduction when Brody first sees the shark and it's that snap cut and his head jumps up and he's like oh fuck it's fucking <laughs> massive I love that cut so much. I know it's and it's become it's beyond classic it is everything it's the whole film and he looks terrified well he doesn't look terrified that's not true at all he looks very surprised (laughs) but it's just brilliantly brilliantly done i could watch that on a loop i love it it's a great moment Chris, is that is that the reverse zoom you're talking about? The that no no no, no she's about where the shark comes out. I like right. the reverse zoom as well, but they're on the orca and he's yeah. t- he's turned around to say so. He turns back and he's he's like at the bottom of the uh, he's crouching down maybe I can't remember anyway. But his head just like boings up. Yeah yeah, <laughs> and he's brilliant. Uh, I'm going to say cliche here, but the the Indianapolis speech, uh, just because I think it 
takes real balls to stop your film in its tracks for five minutes to have someone monologue. But um, yeah. it gives us the key to Quinn. They really nicely cut the tension straight after with, with them all singing, show me the way to go home. And it's just a masterclass <laughs> in in enriching your characters so that when he dies, not long after this, it's even more uh, heartbreaking. Mm. Ow. Okay. Um, so I have a weird one. I'm not sure why. This is my moment, uh, but it is my moment because it's the moment every time I watch Jaws uh, that I have a, a reflex action of goosebumps on my arms, which is my signifier for a moment of cinema that has done something like that I cannot quantify or sometimes can, but I have a physical reaction to it and I get goosebumps. And in this, in Jaws, it's the moment just after the beach panic when the kids are revealed to have had the, sh- uh, the fake uh, shark fin and then the real shark turns up in the pond and the girl sees it and she can't quite get her words out and she's like Shh, shark this is shark and from that moment and the bit where brody's like oh now what and ellen brody goes michael's in the pond and he starts running and the score kicks in that whole sequence of events it gets me every time um it just it gives me goosebumps and i love it and i think it might be something to do with like the fact that you've sort of you're already like in a heightened state because you thought like the kids were going to be a shark and then it turns out it's some kids with a fake fin and before your adrenaline has decreased the real shark turns up and then powers it up even more so i don't know that's my weird theory but it's that moment in jaws that gets me every time the girl going shark shark there's a shark in the pond it's going into the pond (laughs) so yeah that's my moment right um, um, oh, the pond. We didn't really talk about the pond scene where the guy, that guy is so freaking creepy, by the way. <laughs> He's hey, really hey. creepy. Yeah. So, He's, so creepy. Yeah. Like, oh, I don't know. Like, a, yeah, like a sea pedophile. I don't like you. <laughs> right. Thank you. I don't know. It's amazing that he manages to capture that with one line. You boys doing all right over there? I'm like, pedo. Absolutely pedo. And it's, yeah. I think it's because the boat, it's, it's like, look at my child's boat that I'm in as well. <laughs> this is a child's boat. So I'm a friendly man who loves children and children's things like boats. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's dodgy. Um, there's a, a Obviously, there's a, a scene that Spielberg didn't put in where when the shark bites him which is a brilliant shot actually from uh when you're looking down and you were the shark looks great in that moment where it grabs him by the leg and there's a, sh- a bit that wasn't used where he's being dragged in the shark's mouth uh, along and he grabs michael <gasps> and drags michael with him and he's going just like out of some sort of like weirdness or like like he's trying to drag michael to his death along with him like some people say he's trying to save him but he's not because he grabs him and he's trying to drag him underwater, but before he can, like he dies and sort of lets go and goes limp, and the shark takes him under, and Michael's just left there, which is why Michael's so freaking traumatized afterwards. Oh, okay. More so. But yeah, it's pretty dark, that isn't it? Like the idea that this guy grabs him and tries to take him under with him. Yeah. Anyway, MVW, Chris. Uh, well, the poster comes close. Um, the uh, because of how brilliantly simple it is, uh, M Night Shyamalan referred to it as uh, classified it as Big Shark, Pretty Girl, Bad Situation, and it does uh, kind of sum that up. And it was very effective. It might be the greatest movie poster, but I'm actually going to go for John Williams' score. Um, it's 
that driving, steady, forceful uh, series of notes. It feels like there's something inevitable about where it's heading. Spielberg called it primal and a siren warning to you that something is coming to get you. He apparently laughed the first time Williams played it to him, but then he sort of yeah. re- realized that the, the best ideas are the simplest ideas. And he, he, he realized he'd found a signature for his entire movie. Uh, and it, and it's only used to signal the arrival of the shark as well. It's it's never used yeah. to toy with or wrong foot the audience. So it no, means... when the kids have got the cardboard fin, there's no music. Yeah, so it means that when the so then he could have the shark attack without playing the music, and that would be another surprise. And he could also use the music to show that the shark was there when they didn't have a shark. So it ended up not just being a an effective piece of score but also another tool in Spielberg's armory when he didn't have uh, a, a creature at his disposal yeah I think I mean I, I love that story about John Williams sort of like hitting the two notes on the piano for Spielberg he was like I'm gonna I'm gonna play something for you this is the score and it just went dun 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 <laughs> and Spielberg Spielberg <laughs> went <laughs> that's hilarious John yeah. you're a you're a card so tell us what the real score is <laughs> yeah we are paying you so don't yeah. fuck out <laughs> uh, what's your MVWV uh, Robert Shaw as Quint uh, because I struggled to tell what he was saying quite a lot of the time uh, you say he's not a pirate I say he is a pirate sounds like a pirate looks like a pirate um, so him <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, I'll see your uh, Robert Shaw and I'll raise you uh, Richard Dreyfuss's Matt Hooper. He made me think academia was cool. I found it very <laughs> aspirational as a kid. It was like, cool, a geek who's funny and cool. I like him. Uh, but um, I, 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 can't, uh, I can't not have Spielberg as my MVW. Uh, so, it, you know, his insistence that the film be shot at sea and that they have this mechanical shark... Um, you know, it, it makes the movie because what he wanted to do was have an empty horizon, his three leads, and a shark in shot at the same time. And the fact that he like insisted on that and went through everything he went through to get it—it's you know, it's it's my favorite film, and so I I put that on them on his shoulders. So Steven Spielberg, right? What would you change? Nothing. Nothing. Okay, great. So that is the end of this episode. Thanks sir, for listening. Uh, now go on then. V, what would you change? I've got a good one. I think you'll like this. And it's interesting All what right. you said about the book, because I haven't read the book, um, but maybe they stole this idea from me in the future. So um, Hooper, your favourite, He's his character is very clean cut and he's, he's there to be correct for most of the movie. I think he makes like one mistake, but he's basically right the whole time. So I would have liked it if there was something a little bit darker going on with him. And he keeps saying... What, like fr- stopping Ellen Brody? Jesus, read oh, the book, mate. <laughs> yeah, I forgot about that. <laughs> no, um, when he says he's from the very broadly titled Oceanographic Institute, Oceanographic? Oceanographic, whatever. Um, but what I would have liked is when him and Brody are out on the boat and he's like, oh, tell me more about yourself. He's like, oh, I'm from the Oceanographic Institute. I would have liked it if he was like, he's a self-financed expert, but he has no accreditation and no legitimacy because he's bought his way into the fish world and now he'll take loads of risks to prove himself. So he's not from an institute. He's not academic at all. He's just bought every uh, bit of access to the fish that he has. There you go. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then the mafia are involved in the investment in Amity. Yeah. It's good. It's good. I like it a lot. I feel it might, 
it might detract from the streamlined nature of the film. It feels like a very uh, a very sparse film in terms of backstory, but I like it. I don't I don't dislike it, V. So thank you, Christopher. What would you change? So I didn't know you'd be judging and critiquing our changes this week. I know. But... And do you know what? As, right, exactly. As I started saying that, I was like, "Oh, Uh-oh. this isn't this isn't good." What are you doing? And I, had, I was trying to find a way out of my own sentence without just stopping talking. So um, I, I apologise, which is why that statement ended with, uh, "I I think that's great. I don't agree, but well done, Victoria. So sorry. Okay, here we go. Uh, well, I'm going to preface mind by saying that my heart isn't really in this one but uh quint smashing the phone and then pushing the boat too hard during the climax yeah it, it turns a character that i like but who is on the edge of sanity into a bit of a wanker <laughs> yeah he, he basically risks, risks everyone's life <laughs> yeah and i don't i don't know if it's necessary i mean i guess it's to show he's gone completely bonkers in his determination to kill this shark and i don't know if it's necessary and it makes me think he's a bit of a knob at that point but equally i've not got that big a problem with it so i'm just you know i'm searching for something here uh i i don't I don't not like that, Chris. In fact, it's good, um, but I'm I'm happy with it. I'm, uh, do you know what? In all honesty, I am. I think you you actually. It's a good point because you. I don't think he's an asshole. I'm just bewildered by someone who is doing something so stupid mm. that it's going to result in his own death. And obviously, you don't know that at that point. But it's just like. W- you know why? Why? What are you doing? S- like sm- why? What have smashing the radio is just an illogical, um, and so. Yeah, as you say, he's got. It's the pushing. It's, it's it's yeah. It's the pushing the boat so hard, and then it's the fact that like if he has gone completely mad, then he comes back from it pretty quickly, and he's like, "So, what do these gadgets of yours do, Mister Hooper?" Yeah. and he Which calms like down again. The shittest apology in the world. Like, yeah, I guess yeah. you were right. <laughs> That's how I apologise. So, uh, <laughs> tell me, uh, what's your idea? <laughs> <laughs> uh, my my bits that my my change actually comes from exactly the same moment as uh, you, Chris. Although it's a different one because in that shot where Quint is forcing the orca back to shore to drown the shark in the shallows, um, you can see the coastline for the first time, and it looks a lot closer than I had it in my head. And I really hate the fact that you can see how close they are to shore at that point because I'd had them further out to sea. I'd had them more isolated in my head and you know, while they're still obviously in danger, it reduces the level of danger for me that I know land is within sight. So I I don't like that. I can see land at that point. Um, although in the book, the orca goes back to port every night. <laughs> it doesn't stay out at sea. In the, in the book version, they go out, can't find the shark or get attacked and then go back to port and then go back out the following day because they're stupid and don't learn. <laughs> um <laughs> The only other thing uh, that I will say, which it's one of my favourite facts about the movie, the shark is dead. Hooper and Brody are paddling back to shore. Um, And the other thing is, I never realised, because I've never had, I didn't realise the first time I saw it. Obviously, I've got a better copy now. You see them over the credits um, coming into shore and getting onto the beach, don't you? In the distance, like behind the the credits. I'm not stuck around that long, man. No. Oh yeah, they they paddle up to the through the surf and, and on their raft and get out onto the beach in a long shot. Uh, but the other thing I was going to say is when they're paddling and going, what day is it? Wednesday. All of that. Steven Spielberg originally uh, at that point 
having gone through all this, wanted a school of shark fins to appear on the horizon <laughs> heading towards them. <laughs> <laughs> and Richard Zanuck went, absolutely not. No, 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 no. You're not going to put the audience through all that that have shark fins headed towards them on the, from the horizon. So uh, uh, he put the kibosh on that. Uh, and that, ladies and gentlemen, concludes our time with the greatest movie ever made, Jaws. Yeah, I knew it was going to be a bit of a long one, but hey, we've been on this journey together. So let's talk about um, next uh, show, which is going to be Jurassic Park on Thursday. I hope you join us for that. Um, And here's a little bit of a clue for next week's episodes. Um, It's it's my choices next week. So uh, my clue is this. God! American high school is awful, unless you're one of the popular kids. Thoughts? <laughs> I'm not sharing my thoughts. <laughs> it sounds really good. Okay, Chris? Yeah, uh, very good clue, Alex, for films I don't know. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Get with your quiz. Come on, let's do this quiz. All right, are you ready? It's called Answers on a Pulse Card or An Animal Ruined My Holiday. Okay, so if we look at Jaws like it's ruined everyone's holiday, um, I'm going to... You're going to guess at some films where an animal attacks, but I'm reading out the film in the style of a holiday postcard from that film, and it's got clues in it. Okay, are you with me so far? Yeah. And I will ask because it took me such a long time to do. Let me finish. When <laughs> even though if you've got a guess, wait till the end, and you'll know the end because I'll sign off the postcard. Okay, and then the first person to shout the answer is the winner. Do you understand the rules of the quiz? Oh, I don't like that. Uh, unless I don't like that. I'm, I'm, I, yeah, I feel like I feel like now the quiz has become. I've written something that I'm going to yeah. read in full um, and there is <laughs> yeah. a, a, a slight quiz element tagged on to the end, but go on. Go for that's, exa- that's exactly it. Are you ready? Okay. Um, here's your first one. Dear Chris and Alex, arrived at Bodega Bay. People are a bit hostile though. Must be something in the air. The man in charge is obsessed with me, but I hear he's got a thing for blondes. No point crowing about it, I suppose. Much love, Melanie Griffith's mum. <laughs> what film is that? The Birds. Yay! Correct! (laughs) Okay. Here we go. Second one. Dear Alex and Chris, I'm ready to dip a toe into the water here at Black Lake. The local delicacy is steak served blindfolded. Hope I don't lose my head over it. I couldn't bear it. Much love, single white female. Guess the film. Black Lake? No. Oh. Wait, wait, Lake Placid. Steak. Wait, do yes, Lake Placid. Yay, two for you. <laughs> okay, uh, dear Chris and Alex, scuba diving tomorrow is so exciting, and really looking forward to spending more time with my husband, who, as you know, I've drifted from recently. I can't think of anything more romantic than an overnight stay with the ocean all around us. Much love. Wait for me. Open water. <laughs> and, and, uh, open water. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, dear Chris and Alex, freezing here, but a fun plane ride tomorrow should liven the pack up. I'll need some gloves. Do you think glass will do? I borrowed your wallets before I left. Don't be cross. Much love. I will find you and I will kill you. <laughs> the grey. Yeah. <laughs> so it's 3-1. Oh, last one, just for fun. Dear Alex and Chris, great flight here. Free martinis. All the signs are we'll keep trekking. No shades of grey yet. P.S. Guess who turned up? Tim Curry. Congo. 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 <laughs> That's the end of the quiz, Chris won. <laughs> uh, uh, Excellent. Thanks. Right. Shall, 
Shall I say goodbye now? Yeah. <laughs> Join us at next episode where Jurassic Park goes up against Jaws. Please subscribe to us and rate reviewers on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. I've said it before, I've said it again. Take care, bye bye. This was a Stakhanov production. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.